Hello, everybody. Welcome to IND here on this very sunny and very summery May afternoon. My name is Ian Charles Stewart. I'm the co-founder of Wired Magazine and an executive in residence here at, at IMD, the business school where I did my own MBA many, many years ago, as did Tony, by the way. This is an episode of the Founder Series. It's a series that we set up where business founders speak with business founders about their personal and business life journeys, partly because people are always interested in entrepreneurship these days, but also to try and be useful to people. Many in our audience are either would-be entrepreneurs themselves, others are would-be investors in startups. And so we felt at IMD that the more they understood what the processes were like, what the people were like, the better choices they would make both for themselves as potential entrepreneurs and or potential investors. So the idea is to try and be as useful as possible. This evening, I'm joined by Tony Jamis. Tony, welcome back to IMD. Thank you, Ian, for having me. Tony is an alum a few years after me. He built after his MBA, and I'm curious about the timing of all of this, Nexmo, which is a communications as a service provider company, which eventually was sold to Vonage for, I believe it's a public sum, so I'll mention the number 230 million sometime in 2016-ish. He then went off and did a number of other things for a while, and then suddenly he took it upon himself to start a brand new company at the beginning of 2020, pre-COVID actually, but focused on distributed work with a couple of value-based ideas for the settlement, for the for the creation of the platform. And they weren't necessarily work from home at the beginning, but obviously with the work from home explosion, that became a, a big part of the business. And the last press issue from the company was they raised, I think it was 150 million at a valuation that took it over the unicorn hurdle of a billion dollars. So a significant amount of progress in the two years when the rest of us were all locked up inside. And I want to hear how he did that. Tony, welcome to IMD again. Welcome to the Founder Series. Please say a little bit about who you are and how you got to where you are, and maybe an introduction to what Oyster HR is. Absolutely. Uh, again, thank you, Ian, and, and hello, everybody. Good to be reconnected back to the IMD community. So I'll introduce myself, and I will tell you the genesis story of Oyster and, and where we are today, and then we can, we can have more questions. I'm originally from Lebanon. I was born there in 1980, and I had this amazing opportunity to move to France uh, when I was a teenager, where I studied computer science. And I started working in, in the telecommunication industry, and that's what I was doing before, before coming to IMD. I was working for messaging providers. And uh, in 2009, I went to IMD, and, and, and I spent a year there doing my MBA. And right after graduation, I started a company called Nexmo, actually uh, with one of my IMD classmates, uh, Garrett Sinterman, who helped me uh, start the business that time. And that, that company was called Nexmo, that is an API platform for building communication applications. That business went pretty well. We went to 100 million of revenues in the first five years, took it public in mid-2016, as Ian, you mentioned, when we merged with a company called Vonage on the NASDAQ. Uh, I, I stayed there for a couple of years and I was managing investor relations, uh, trying to pitch to Wall Street that the future of communication is programmable through APIs. And then um, the company got acquired last year by Ericsson for $6.5 That was kind of the chapter with, with Nexmo and Vonage. And then uh, I took some time off, as you, as you mentioned. I took a year and a half off after exiting the business. And uh, during that time, I spent time really trying to understand what I'm going to do next. And I very quickly decided that I don't want to be a full-time investor or there are other people in the world that can do that better than me. I can invest in their funds. Instead, it was clear to me I wanted to start another business. But this time around, I was more concerned about how you build the business and what that business is going to do. For me, it had to be two things. One, a mission-driven business. I came to a phase in my career where aligning my values with what I'm doing is important. 
but also it had to be a globally distributed business because at Nexmo, we hired people in 40 countries. We were putting technology in front of the global fragmentation of the telecom market. So we had to have people in 40 plus countries. And I was able to witness the power of being distributed. Not only you can access highly diverse and highly committed team around the world, talent around the world. Also, you can change people's life. You would be the best employer of Diego in Argentina and Mary in Athens and Mohammed in Morocco. So I wanted to replicate that, but at scale from the beginning. And I started looking for solutions. What are the solutions that enable companies, early stage companies specifically, to adopt a global hiring strategy? And back in mid-2019, I, there were none. I didn't find solutions. I talked to lawyer. I talked to other distributed companies. And what they told me, they told me that the, our biggest challenge is how to compliantly hire, pay, and take care of our distributed teams around the world. So I couldn't find solution. But what I stumbled upon is an industry that is called employer of record. These are professional services companies that enable you to hire somebody in another country without setting up an entity. It's a highly fragmented market. Every country, there's few of them. They didn't use software at all. They were very expensive. It cost you up to 20% of the salary to, to engage with them. And uh, the experience really sucked. And it was a $17 billion market. So that market was screaming at me, ready for software disruption. So I knew if we apply a similar strategy than the next one, where we put a software in front of a highly fragmented and regulated market, in the case of next one is telecommunication, here is employment, we can dramatically drop the barrier to entry to global hiring and create a new category that today we're coining global employment platforms and create a business that could be uh, pretty significant quickly. But I said, why me? Why should I do it myself? I mean, I'm not an HR tech professional. It's really when I realized if you make global hiring as easy as local hiring, you can transform the world. You can reduce brain drain. People like me and many of the IMD students don't have to leave their home country to access job opportunities. And I got obsessed with this macroeconomical opportunity. Just to give you some data, there are 90 million jobs going unfulfilled in the West for knowledge workers, according to BCG. The economical loss is estimated to be $8.5 trillion. At the same time, you have 1.5 billion knowledge workers coming into the workforce in the next 10 years, mostly in emerging markets. Brian Kaplan, the economist from George Mason University, in his book, Open Borders, he argues that if you remove the concept of borders from talent mobility, you can triple the world GDP. So it was clear to me towards the end of 2019 that this is what I'm going to do. My company not only will be fully distributed, but its mission is to help other companies step into the global talent pool. And its mission is to have the world as the oyster of every candidate around the world, no matter where they are. So that was January 2020. We put together an investment memo, evangelized with a few investors. We raised our seed round in a few weeks. When the money hit the bank account, we all went into lockdown. Quite a starting we, point. Yeah, it was a bit surreal. And so we, we knew that we had to go really fast. We knew what we were, we were like expecting to spend millions, tens of millions of dollars to promote the idea of distributed work is better for business, is better for people and better for the planet. And then uh, a virus, a biological entity, Mother Nature decided that we want to accelerate the path to remote work. So we had to go fast. So in less than a year, in 2020, we built an employment infrastructure in 180 countries. We build a software platform that make global hiring as easy as local hiring. And we build a distributed team that grew today to over 600 people that is distributed in 70 countries and resembles planet Earth in terms of its diversity. We have over 60% women in the company, including on the leadership team. And obviously, because of the tailwind of distributed hiring, we were able to grow rapidly. And by rapidly, I mean 20x last year. 
We've delivered double-digit top line in revenues and raised $230 million in total since the beginning. So it's one thing to build a company and then add workers in different countries because you have an existing culture, you have existing processes, you have a way of doing business. And, and even then, I found that in the past, when, when we set up overseas subsidiaries for the companies that, that I've built, that I've run, we would normally take someone from that country, bring them to our place and work for at least six months, preferably up to two years. And then they would go back and set up the business in, the, in their own country. And it would, that was the manner of doing things for many people at the time, because they thought that that was the only way that you could transplant corporate culture, company culture, attitudes, ways of doing business. And yet you did it from scratch, where everybody was distributed really right from the beginning, pretty much. And now you run the business at its unicorn size from a beach on Cyprus in, in the middle of the Mediterranean. What do you think are the elements that allow you to create a glue-style corporate culture that enables that sort of growth at a distance without having had the kernel of a culture, the beginning of a culture, to start it off? Good question. To understand the glue, we need to, we need to rethink culture. Okay, so culture is now, how do you work together becomes culture. As you work asynchronously, uh, increasingly asynchronously around the world, across time zones, uh, and, and adopt a flexible way of working, you have to be very specific in how you want to operate, how you work together, what are the tools, we call them the tools and the rules. We branded them even at Oyster, we call them follow the sun methodology. So we train people on them through the onboarding. We even open source that. We became the Oyster Academy. Everybody can go and take that class online. So really, the culture becomes, number one, is how you work together. Secondly is, it becomes, how do you measure uh, results? And how do you make sure that people are effective, no matter what they are? How do you manage performance? So we have the OKR process. We use objective key results uh, that determines our goals and our metrics from company to the individual level. That process maturity at Oyster is always the maturity of a company five times of our size. Because when we used to go to the office, we, we confused performance with presence. And we inherited that from the industrial revolution, people going to plants and time equal output. We, we had to move into a, a, a way to assess performance that is not re, re, the presence. So that's why you need to be, be very clear about expectations and goals on an individual level, on team level, on the company level. So that becomes a culture. Thirdly is what becomes a culture is how do you relate to each other? What kind of relationship do you want to build? How do you create psychological safety in the company? How do you build trust? Because building trust is harder when you're remotely. So this is becoming culture. So how do you operate the tools and the rules? How do you measure performance and make people successful? And how do you relate to each other? And by the way, these are the three things that you put them in any business, whether it's distributed or not, you get the business to become a better business, right? That's why the distributed companies of the future are going to be the best company of the future because they are forced to be better. So in a sense, what you're saying on, you can't lean on what has become practice, which is to say, the manager can look out his door, see everybody at their desks and assume work is being done because presence indicates work in theory. And what you're saying is actually, no, measure it. And if you measure it and you're finding ways without being oppressive, because measurement can be big brotherish if it's done badly, then you actually know if the work's being done, whether they're there or not. That's essentially what you're saying. Exactly. And it seems to work so far. You've got 90 plus percent retention rate. I noticed that your holiday rates are generous, but people don't seem to be using them very much. I looked at the impact report online, which is a lovely actually summary of not only your approach to how you work with customers and the impact you're having on the global South in terms of an employment pool and introducing them to the global North as employers, but also the way you actually treat your own employees. There's a nice summary in there about that. That's interesting. So rules and tools help you overcome 
the lack of Friday night pizza, which was our way of reinforcing culture at the beginning of Wired magazine in San Francisco in, in 1993, four, five. Okay. Clearly, it seems to be working. In terms of customers, I noticed you've been commenting lately on both LinkedIn uh, and on Twitter, the different approaches that different senior CEOs have had to trying to get people back in the office or not. Brian Chesky says you can work from home forever. And David Solomon at Goldman says he wants everybody back at their desk by 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. What do you think is going to happen with this? Is it really a question of certain industries are more suited to distributed work and others don't? Clearly, in some of the high-pressure investment banks, they don't want people to work 40-hour weeks or even 80-hour weeks. They want them there 24-7 all the time on their phones. So maybe that's the reason they don't want distributed work. And it's harder to do that, I think, from long distance. Where do you think this, this goes? Do we, do we separate out into different types of companies using different degrees of distributed work? Or do you, feel, do you really believe that all companies could benefit from having more distributed workforces? So I'd like to answer that question from the talent perspective first. And it's going to lead us to that, to the company perspective. So today, the best talent in the world, they gained in the last two years, a new degree of freedom, which is location. They can decide to live anywhere and they know that they can get jobs because they're the top talent. So the top talent in the world are going to gravitate towards companies that make them successful no matter where they live. So that's in turn putting pressure on companies to evolve how they work together, to, to create a more flexible, remote first or hybrid mode of collaboration and communication and in order for them to retain and attract uh, the best talent in the world. And that's why there's no going back. At Oyster, we receive 13,000 job applications per month for a company of two years old. We're hiring probably uh, 50 people a month. We, we can't hire all these people, obviously. So essentially, but uh, where, where many companies are struggling to attract talent, I mean, Airbnb, when, when they announced their policy, they got 600,000 visits to their, to their career page in 24 hours. I mean, it's loud and clear what people want. The question is, are these leaders listening? That's the problem. It's very interesting. I, I think one of the other things that I've heard in talking with people in preparation for this chat um, talking with friends who are, are CEOs is some people are saying that what might actually help is potentially workplace discrimination, where some people lobby stronger than others and therefore get more salaries. Some people are good at managing their workplace interactions with people to be seen, to be heard, to be visible while other people stay at their desks. And in an environment where you're measuring the output rather than the socializing in the office, maybe judgments and assessments become fairer. It's definitely an equalizer. And that's why it's an amazing opportunity for talent, for marginalized talent that didn't have the opportunity to be part of the, the economy, especially in knowledge work. So it's definitely an equalizer. And it's also, it reduces massively the amount of politics in the organization because politics are a lot linked to an animal reaction to a fear response. And, and when, uh, when we work asynchronously, the level of anxiety at work is much lower because a lot of the work is prepared in advance. There's less surprises. Uh, there's less opportunities to react as humans because the way asynchronous work work, that makes it a much more safer environment for humans to work in. Right. I guess it's also true that, again, because we're relying more on outputs than supposed inputs or presence in the office, there's less chance for people to present their way up through the um, management chain and they're required to actually perform. Is there any chance that some people, is there any resistance? Are you seeing resistance in companies to the degree of monitoring of clients? I know there's a company based here in Lausanne that also started as a securities company or a security company and companies and found that the monitoring software they had to monitor the networks also allowed them to monitor employees' work 
And there's a balance to how that's used, right? So measuring and monitoring can be used to a point where it can become oppressive. So then it becomes, it's a tool like any other, and it depends how it's used. How is your platform managed to ensure that that doesn't happen? So it isn't overused or abused. Do you define how far the measurement goes in the relationship between employee and employer? Yeah, so good question. So our, our platform doesn't get into this type of monitoring because we process employment contracts, payroll benefits uh, on behalf of the employer for their benefit of their employees in 180 countries. But we use it internally, right? So we use certain technologies internally to monitor uh, the activity that's happening in our, in our business because one of our goals is employee well-being. One of our four pillars of running the company is, is employee well-being and engagement. So, so what we monitor, we monitor things like uh, Slack activities on weekends. Okay, we want to make sure it's low or zero. We track things like sentiment, emotional sentiment. We have an app called Kona that we use on Slack every day. It sends everyone in the company, how are you feeling? And so we aggregate that on a dashboard. Do you think that's something you might offer to clients at some point? Or is it something you encourage clients to do on their own? Yeah, I think there's, you know, there are many what we call culture as a service platforms out there that people operation teams use. Uh, the problem we're, we're solving is already massive, right? We have a lot of runway in terms of growth before we decide to venture into these, these areas. Okay, so let's get back to the, the business itself at Oyster. What have you found, it's only two years, and it's extraordinary to think of how much you've been able to do in the two years. What have you found surprisingly easy? And what have you found to be more complex and more difficult than you expected? Let me start with the second part because it's easier to talk about the challenges and the complexities. I am amazed how complex global employment is every day. Every time we open a new country, it is like government haven't made it easy. Uh, to employ people. And that was, uh, that was surprising, surprisingly more challenging than, than we thought uh, it's going to be. So the first part of the question is around what I find easier. I think here, I mean, I would say fundraising was easier for this type of business, not anymore. Obviously, you know, second time entrepreneur <clears throat> on a massive market, growing crazy. I think that that ticks a lot of the boxes. Yeah. It's always easier when you've already done it once. They know that you've actually had an exit and they're more likely to give you money a second time. Yeah. So fundraising was therefore relatively straightforward. Actually setting it up so that you could employ people in different countries. Yes, anybody who's tried to do that and open offices in different places or outsource work knows that that's complicated. And that's the problem you're trying to solve for people, which sounds great. So where does Oyster go from here? Are you expanding? How do you decide? Because you're not limited by geography. There's only so many people you can hire a day. So that's probably a limitation to a degree. I noticed that you organize in your company, you have a buddy and a mentor and a relationship with HR for the onboarding process. So there's a you're making sure there's enough people that new people can come in contact with, again, for that business of trying to encourage corporate culture. How do you decide which way to go from here? Or are you just, you just trying to deal with the fire hose as it comes in? Well, there's a bit of both happening at the same time, right? That's that startup life. So if you think about it, we have three major goals in the business that we talk about. We call them the golden triangle of sustainable growth, which is the, we call land grab. Number one is about land grabbing the markets as quickly as we can. Secondly, it's around uh, the experience, how can you make the customer and the employee, the team member experience, the employee under management, we call them team members, the best in the category. And thirdly is how do we keep the engagement of our employees high and sustain that amazing culture? So if you think about it, the first two are really around the strategy here is about what products do you want to launch to sustain that growth and keep growing and, and create defensibility of the model. 
which segment do you, do you go after to make the business more resilient, especially now in the current macroeconomical situation? So what channels do you use? So in our, in our case, we use a number of channels, but we also developing our unique channels to Oyster, like the community. We are developing an existing, our existing community of HR professionals around the world. And so that, that's from a GTM standpoint on the land grab goal that we have. Secondly is around the experience. And the experience here is, when I talk about experience, there's a customer experience and the user interface, but it's also the employee experience. How can you make employment in all these countries fair, safe, and delightful? Uh, how do you make the contract, employment contract, the most favorable possible towards employees in all these countries? Not because you're in Morocco that you don't deserve to be employed through a, a fair contract. We talk about the fairness the, of the offer. You know, what are the local benefits that people deserve in Athens for knowledge work? And so, so we're building software modules that enable our customers to really personalize the employment experience while making sure that it is at least in the top 50 percentile of the country or above. So given the processes that companies need to get their heads around to use your service and to, and to take that leap of understanding that it's possible to get employees to fill jobs they're not able to fill back home, do you think there are some industries that are going to be able to manage this better than others? Do you think there are some industries, we mentioned earlier, the difference between two different CEOs and two different industries. And they've, they've both got business context, which make it relatively easier or relatively more difficult to maintain their existing cultures. So the cultures will have to change if they take advantage of this. Do you see certain industries doing better at this than others? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, uh, if you think about it, the more evolved an industry is when it comes to taking care of their people, the more they are here to create an environment that is flexible, but also empowering. So essentially, if you take industries that are faced with talent shortage and they have to be a more attractive employer to the workforce, then they have to change. They have to really evolve. And the more in demand, the more you have talent shortage, the more you're going to have to, you're going to be forced to move in the direction because the best talent in the world increasingly is looking for flexible and, and uh, they're looking for freedom. It kind of suggests actually, therefore, that the, the companies that decide to use your distributed work platform may de facto because of their attitude to making their employees happy, maybe better places to work than the ones that require you to be in the office. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wouldn't be surprised that uh, the engagement and the, uh, the employee uh, net promoter score of this company is actually, I'm going to take note, I'm going to go test that. I'm going to go on the glass door, do an analysis of the glass door of our customers to see where, where yeah, they are. It, it's an interesting question. And, and I'd love to see that over time, the progress, because I can imagine that that would be the impact given the number mm -hmm. of people I know, young people and older people, frankly who have enjoyed the fact that they spent less time in the office. And then it's a separate issue to decide about how far they go away. Okay, a couple of macro questions because we're now moving into a new environment, right? We have two things going on which, which affect us all globally in business or investment. And I'm curious as to how you see the world from your lens of trying to connect global, global North and global South. A, we have what seems very likely to be Cold War II. Whatever happens with a resolution between Russia and Ukraine, a level of trust is gone in the relationship between East and West. And there are other countries that are aligning themselves, trying not to, but aligning themselves one way or the other. So that changes marketplace size for people. Suddenly there are certain markets you can't address and certain you can. It also affects supply. There are certain places that it's inappropriate to source from for a while. How do you see that affecting what you do? Are you, are you going to cross those boundaries between 
each side of Cold War II? Will you find yourself more on one side? Did you think you have a solution that can help both sides? In crisis like this, there are opportunities to, that needed to happen in order to kind of recalibrate the world, right? And one of them is global employment. And let me tell you why. The crisis we're in today is a supply crisis, not a demand crisis. Supply, for various reasons, pandemic, wars, is fluctuating, is volatile. But demand is high. And that's why interest rates are, are went up, inflation went up, and as a result, interest rates went up, which actually going to hurt companies that are reliant on very cheap capital. And number one is going to hurt technology companies because technology companies had access to massive amount of capital in the last five years because investors thought interest rate is going to be zero forever. You start a company and suddenly you, you can raise money and have big valuations. As a result of that, so companies, companies, when they faced with uncertainty of funding in the future, what they need to do is to extend the runway. Every VC company in the world is telling their portfolio company right now, extend your runway as much as you can. But the demand is still there. So it's not like they have a demand issue where they can reduce their, their revenues in order to be more efficient. They have to continue to grow at similar rates because the demand is still there to harvest. So in the past, the reaction was to lay off people or stop hiring or freeze hiring or slow down hiring. But today, when you look at the world, what happened in the last two years is that now you can hire people anyway. You're not restrictive anymore to hire only in cities where you have offices that are typically very expensive cities. And when you look at the data, if you hire outside of these hot cities, whether it's San Francisco, New York, London, and so on and so forth, the clearing price of a, of a talent for the same job, uh, same seniority, is uh, anything between less than 30% to less than 70%. You're essentially so, offering an arbitrage opportunity for the labor market, right? It's an arbitrage across high-cost cities and lower-cost labor, and both sides get happy because the South gets more money than they would get locally, the North gets a less expensive employee than they would get locally. Today, right? So today, I want to make sure that it, you hear me that today, it is an opportunity because there is still a difference between location and salary is still not equal today in the world. We hope by creating a global employment market that is disconnected from the reality of any specific country, we can start to get to an equalization of salaries and, and pay because then you have this country called the global employment country that operates on its own. But for now, today, because we are in a, in a macroeconomical challenge that is created from the West, from these uh, supply chain issues uh, and to bring products to consumers in the West, people that consume on the planet mostly, then we can resolve that this time. We don't have to react through uh, freezing hiring or laying off people. We can react by actually shifting our attention to hiring people in countries where it is cheaper to hire today. It makes sense right? and, and, and it's clear. So unfortunately, within what's happening in the macro environment these days, we are starting to see falls in demand in different places. The word stagflation is being used more and more often. The idea, therefore, that prices go up, but demand goes down, and the economy, therefore, suffers a bit. I guess the answer to the question which I'm going to ask is, is similar, which is that in that sort of environment, you offer corporations an opportunity to continue expanding at a lower cost for a period of time. But, but let me ask the question then. So assuming we're going into a global slowdown, not necessarily recession, people argue, some commentators believe we're already in the first quarter of a slowdown in much, much of the West, certainly Western Europe, perhaps in North America, unclear. But either way, they're predicting a slowdown. How does that affect what Oyster does as a company as you go forward? Not your customers, but you. We are correlated with the talent shortage in the world. So that's definitely going to be an impact, but we're also correlated to the number of hiring transactions that are happening. And if you have people being great talent being laid off for economical 
recessionary reasons from company A and company B is still hiring, we're going to still have transactions happening in the market that we will benefit from. Now, I don't know how it's too early to say which direction things will go, right? Whether the slowdown from hiring from a certain category of the market might not be get offset by the expansion of hiring transaction on the other side of the market. That's yet to be seen. Today, we haven't seen any deceleration of demand yet. We actually tripled since we started our fundraising for the Series C. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting. Clearly, people are predicting a reduction in liquidity in the marketplace in general. Quantitative tightening does that. If people have to buy back the bonds that the central banks have been holding, then that sucks liquidity out of the market, which means there's less money for investment and potentially, therefore, less money for growth. So I'm, I'm glad you guys raised your round recently. Timing couldn't be more ideal, I have yeah. to say. No, it's, it's, it's great timing. So we're getting to the point where I'm going to encourage Igor to look out for questions. For those of you who are listening, if you have interesting questions, please raise them and, and Igor will, will read them out. I'm going to start the process off just by bringing us back to the environment we're in. So this is essentially a leadership school. IMD is a business school, of course, in general, but its focus has always been leadership more than trying to provide more consultants and investment bankers for the usual clients. But it is about trying to help people understand what it's like to lead people, lead a company, um, grow something. What do you think changes, Tony, in leadership if more of the workforce is distributed? More trust, less control. That's number one. Secondly is more empowerment and enablement, also through the tools and the way you work together. And more about caring about how people feel working in this company. So essentially care about the well-being of people. So it's kind of the three things that have to change in order for it to work on a remote way. So first one, why trust more than control is because as we discussed earlier, you don't see people in the office and we have to change the chip here that it's a presence is not equal result. And it's harder to build trust in a virtual environment. So it becomes, you have to make it part of your job as a leader is to build trust. Every transaction you're making, every word you're saying, every email you're writing, every Slack message you're making, it's about continuing to build trust. So that, that's what needs to change. And caring about the well-being also is important because you want to create an environment that enable people to feel safety in a remote environment because, again, we're not in person. So you're missing out on these emotional signals, whether I should be safe or not. And many people are, I have to say, traumatized from previous jobs. They come into the organization and they are reacting to bad experience they had in the past in the previous job. So you really want to focus on create tons of amount of emotional safety in the organization so people can feel they can bring their whole self into the, the Zoom conversation. Okay. I'm curious to see how it works in practice. I'm currently involved in three startups, and I'm going to recommend one of them have a chat to someone on your um, sales side soon. There are a lot of attractive things about this, um, not just the fact that it enables you to access people you can't locally. In a place like Switzerland, people are expensive, and it's also hard to find the skills you want in certain areas. So smaller countries have that problem just as much as big cities do. And so if we can find people to fill those roles and we're comfortable that the way of working, we can manage the way of working so that it actually functions appropriately. I think, I think that's very attractive. I think there are lessons to be learned from the way you are actually running the building of your team beyond just the services you provide for your existing companies. I think it's one of the most interesting things about Oyster these days is how you're actually creating brand new culture, brand new business, new client processes, new business processes, all remotely. I think that's really quite an interesting story. Igor, are you going to give us yeah, some questions? The last question is asked by Kusam, and it's about the leadership skill set of leading a global workforce remotely as compared to more traditional on-premises leadership skill set. So that's a little bit what we just covered. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to add to the global aspect, or do you think we've covered it? I think leaders have to totally delete their biases, like totally. 
to be able to allow people from all over the planet to come and build their business. Like you have to look at the person and see a human being. You cannot see uh, anything else. And you have to create that definition of what does that mean in your head. And, 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 and that's like the biggest myth that I see from leaders saying, well, they are from a different culture. How can I work with them? And, and actually really it is, they are biased themselves. And, you know, I don't blame them. That's how we grow up as people. Yep. And we, you know, we, if, if we only stayed in one country for a very long period of time and we just create a model of the world in our brain and us versus them, and we are different and a French person prefer this and a German person prefer this, like we have to absolutely delete completely the file, this programming file in our brain. And it's so good to do that. It's going to be a struggle for some people. I think it's, uh, we may find, as is often the case with significant paradigm shifts in the way people do things, that it actually results in, in different people uh, as leaders. What's next, Igor? There's a question about when we talk about remote hiring and remote distributed company management, is it affected by company size? I, there in specifics uh, related hmm. to smaller companies, larger companies, does it change with company size? Okay, so that's an interesting question because we've been talking partly today about the way you've grown your company from scratch to 600 people using a distributed workforce and using the processes associated with it. So that tells us that it can work, although, I, as I said, I think it's probably easier if you already have a culture to expand from. Have you noticed in your client base, and your client base is impressive, by the way, so people should go and look at the Oyster HR website and see the brands of the clients that already use the company. Have you noticed a difference in both take up and or comfort with your platform in different sizes of countries or different regions of companies? We started by working with small and medium-sized businesses, and we're going up market right now, uh, up market up to 5,000 people. We have companies that have up to 5,000 people on the platform, I mean, as a, as a size of the customer. But the smaller you are, the more likely you, you qualify to use or you're interested in using a platform like Oyster because they don't have access to lawyers, accountants, payroll providers in-house, right? So if you're a large corporation, then you're already using a PwC or, or a Deloitte somewhere in the world to do your stuff. And uh, it's really hard to change from that model to a software model that easily. So you have this classic technology adoption life cycle from the early adopter to everybody else. That being said, we, there are companies that are bigger than Oyster, GitLab, let's say, or Automa Automatic is probably like 5,000 people that are fully distributed. There are examples from non-software as well, companies. Uh, there are even industries that operated for free distributed for, for tens of years. Think about the law firm. There are some law firms that don't have, they're like just a bunch of people working, working this in a distributed way. And we will prove it with Oyster. And as this company continues to grow, our goal is to demonstrate that distributed work is a better work, no matter what the size is. I can imagine it making sense for law firms because every lawyer, every, certainly every partner is his own separate company almost. And then he has a team of people under him and he has his own clients and then the partnership works in, in exchange, but basically each partner works in a, in, a, in a different area. But as we said earlier, I think there are some companies for which this is a natural progression for others, it's more difficult. But what you're saying is it's going to be driven by workforces that decide, actually, that's quite a nice way to relate to their employer. And so um, they may demand it. It'd be interesting to see what happens. Igor, next. Yeah, there's a question about whether at Oyster, there are roles which are specific to managing distributed remotely working company. Do we have specific roles that manage aspects of the remote work in Oyster? So yes, we do. We have our, we call it the workplace team. Workplace team is the, uh, essentially the people function or the HR function, the company that has multiple functions. One of them is workplace design. So we're designing our workplace the way we design a product. 
And we have uh, people like product managers here thinking about how do we want to work together. And, and early on in the company, right, right when we started the company, we've acquired this consulting company with three guys. Their job was to spend like five years going into other companies and help them to become better at being remote and help talent around the world become better at being remote workers. So we acquired that company, we acquired that knowledge, we applied internally, we built our own training program, and then we open sourced it called the Oyster Academy now. Right. No, interesting. Martin asks, Martin van Beek asks, employees want to be part of something, a community or a tribe, and want a sense of belonging. And you've talked about values and you've talked about principles that Oyster itself is based on, but also behind the idea of the business model in the first place. So I spend half my time in the nonprofit world and half my time in the for-profit world these days. And I'm seeing that the nonprofit world does not have a monopoly on values in employee-employer relationships. What's your view on how this affects purpose-driven, mission-driven, because everybody says they're mission-driven, right? The question is how real it is. How mm-hmm. this affects people's sense, both in-company and out-of-company, employers and employees, the mission and purpose of their business or the nonprofit they're in? I have no doubt. The companies, successful companies of the future are going to be purpose-driven companies for a number of reasons. Uh, number one is you succeed better. You attract better talent. You retain better talent. Customers want to buy from you. And these are stats that many, many research firms have talked about and been proven many times. So first is you, you build a better business. Secondly, is you attract more money and better money. The ESG asset class is the fastest growing asset class in the history of investment. Now, more than ever, we have money pouring into mission-driven businesses, a lot in the public market coming into growth stage and private equity and then increasingly going early stage. So you don't have to launch the next social network and make people addicted to, to, to be a successful entrepreneur. You don't have to create a, a, the biggest e-commerce uh, store on, in the world and make people buy things that they don't, they don't want to buy or they don't need and you can still be successful. This is what the future will be. I think I agree with that in principle. Certainly the millennial generation, my own daughters care deeply about the values of everything they do and everybody they work with. I think as an investor, it's a little harder. I know that the ESG space is fast growing as a, as a sector. I think one of the problems is assessing the reality of the ESG claims of companies. And if you look at the companies that are included in different ESG funds, it's not always who you expect. So I think, I think, there's, I think there's a way to go on that. I think it's easier in the smaller corporations where they start from scratch with this idea and principle. I think it's harder with some of the larger incumbents to do that. So I, I, think, I think validating the values and validating the purposes is something that all employees have to do for themselves. And employers try, need to communicate in a way that sounds more than just what we used to call CSR. Yeah, that's why at Oyster, we are benefit corporation. Uh, so we have the legal status to be a benefit corporation. We have our impact thesis that we've researched and open source. We have we just announced our impact report. So we are ESG ready ahead of our time. And we want to make sure that as we continue our journey, increasingly our cap table is reflected of ESG investors. Today, we have people on the cap table that are that are mission-driven. Base 10, or one of our latest investors, uh, actually Salesforce Impact Fund is an investor Based on which is the largest uh, black-led yeah. black-led VC in the world that donate fifty percent of the proceeds to black-led universities it's in the form of scholarships. So we're really, as this company grows, as we go into late stage, we're going to access bigger pool of ESG money that is here to fuel our growth. I think that's a good thing to hear, and I think it's easier. I don't mean it's easy because nothing's easy these days, and certainly building a company is not easy. But because you've done it from scratch, because you've set the parameters from scratch, because you've made the statements from scratch, I think it's easy to make sure that everything you do is identifiably coherent within an ESG mandate. But it's not, it's not true of a lot of big companies. Douglas Gilbert's asked an interesting question. 
much of the environment that we hear about, we read about on LinkedIn or elsewhere, and, and the general news media is about hybrid workforces, because there's still the assumption that there'll be a combination of people that need to be in the office and people that can be outside, people that spend more time here and more time, less time there. Douglas is asking, do you have a different strategic and operational rhythm for companies which are 100% distributed or 99, 95% distributed versus the way that you run a company that is 50% distributed? Or are you saying that the tools and rules framework that you started with is appropriate either way. These things that are that we're doing in the way we work together, they apply to any company that want to be a better company. So to give you an example, we have a, from a rhythm standpoint, we meet as an executive team once a week for an hour and a half. We have very clear agenda. What day, by the way? Uh, what day of the week? People have different Tuesday. views on this. Tuesday, okay. So not Monday, yeah. not Friday. Interesting. Yeah, Tuesday. Because, because actually what happens is a Tuesday uh, afternoon for me, I start the day. So the, the call is like in 6, 6 p.m. my time. So I spend the afternoon watching... <laughs> all the asynchronous videos for the update from each of my team, from each exec in my team. So before I get to the meeting, I've already digested the, the data of the meeting because it's prepared in advance. 80% of the documents are already produced and people have read them. Usually they are short, usually like a five, 10 minutes, maybe maximum 20 minutes video that you want to watch. And then before the dive in the conversation, and then before getting everybody in my team have spent two hours watching these videos, these async videos to have an update of everything that happened in the business that week. So suddenly, suddenly what you have is everybody have access to the same information. My team is not updating me as a CEO, they're updating everybody the same thing. So suddenly you have very high degree of transparency. You have very high degree of productivity because we know exactly why we're here and what we're trying to achieve. And yes, we are forced to do it because we operate in multiple time zones and we're moving really fast, but every company can apply this and become a better at having a, a strategic and operational rhythm. Tony, the publisher in me, here's a book. You need to do a how-to distributed workforce book because there's some, there's some gems of, of learning there that you guys have gone through, partly to create and solve your own workplace problems, but also because you've thought about this more than most people. I really, really think you should do that. But that should at least be a blog post because there's some really, really interesting learning points in there. Shulin is asking a question. It's partly a statement, and, and I'm not sure if you have comments you want to make about this because we've talked about aspects of this. She cares about the well-being of employees and talks about how clearly in some parts of the world today, this is a struggle. I don't know if that's a direct relation reference to um, Shanghai, but certainly there are parts of the world where it's tough. And obviously, everywhere in the world had tough parts during the, the COVID crisis. She says she's curious about solutions on improving well-being. You've talked a little bit about some of the ways that you make sure that there is unambiguous and clear communication, unambiguous and clear measurement of work results so that it's not subject to lobbying or physical presence or, or anything else so that people can really see output. So it's output based. Is there anything else you want to comment on that people can learn from as ways and approaches to help well-being in, in what has been and, and will likely continue to be for a little while challenging times? First is, as I said earlier, you have to care about how people feel and be able to measure that working in this organization. And you need to have it as part of how you relate to other is to create that emotional safety that discussed about. Because this is important because you want to do no harm as an employer. Already life is stressful, it's challenging. So people come into the in, in, uh, to work, whether virtually or in person, and they have all their fears and triggers uh, and reactivity. So how can you create an environment that reduces that? So specifically, there's a link with that and remote work, which is flexible way of working. So what I mean flexible is you set your own time. I don't work here. I'm in Cyprus. I don't work in the morning. I go sailing in the morning. I work in the afternoon. I work in the evening. I have an hour at 5 p.m. where I go swim in the sea with my children. And everybody knows that. Nobody can book me in that time. 
and I talk about it and expect other people in my team to have similar well-being routines. I don't send any email over the weekend and I don't respond to Slack notification. If it's urgent, you send me a WhatsApp. I have on my Slack and everybody in my email, I say, I don't expect you to respond to me immediately. And I would like to say as well, you want to, when you're building trust as part of your job as a leader, you want to, you want to check in on your team and not check out on the results. And that's very aligned with a synchronous way of communication and collaboration because you got the update. You're not checking in on the result. You already got the update before the meeting. So here you're, you're there having this presence towards the person, helping them in their challenges and checking in on how they're doing in their life and really connecting with them on a personal level. And finally, is you have to also invest in the mental health. We have a service that they subscribe to where they can have professional coaching if needed. These are the, some of the things that we're we're doing. I'm sure that we're doing much more. Again, I don't want to say we have we have also one thing called the Focus Friday. So Friday, there's no internal meeting. So we expect people at least how I use it, and I expect people to use it is on Friday. Is for me is about getting to the bottom of what I need to do for that week, so that I can go into the weekend and not needing to work, and really protect that sacred time that people need. And we train people on how they should take care of themselves as part of the onboarding process. I used to do something similar. I would sometimes stay late at the office on Friday. I have friends who managed to get out at six. I never did. But I, I, was, I would stay sometimes late on Friday because the moment I woke up on Saturday morning, that was home time. And I wouldn't look at anything, read anything, review anything until 6 p.m. on Sunday night when I started preparing for the week. But basically, I wanted to make sure that when I woke up on Saturday morning, I was at home with the kids. And that was it. Good principles. We're starting to get to the end of the hour. We are at the end of the hour. There's one more question here that Martin's asked. It's the point about flexibility. If you offer a great deal of flexibility in the way workers relate to their jobs and to their employers, is there a risk that the workforce itself becomes inflexible? Not the company, but the workforce itself becomes inflexible because they decide there's a certain way to work. I guess the first answer would be there's going to be give and take because in the end, companies need outputs. And as long as they're getting outputs and people are happy with it and the company's happy with the cost of that output and the results they get and their clients are happy, it's okay. And there's still to and fro. It's not set in stone. But what are your thoughts on that? Is there a risk that the demand side, the worker demand side becomes too strong and too inflexible and then that causes problems for companies? It might, but you know, these markets they need to come to a balance. They need to come to an equilibrium, right? So one of the drivers of the increasing in employee expectation in the last two years is talent shortage. If companies didn't need it to hire, we wouldn't have the opportunity to have employers be listening more to employees in that period of time, right? And it's like a pendulum, right? So so now we maybe we had it in the other direction, but the new degree of freedom and expectation that we've gained, we're not gonna lose them, right? So they they continue with us in the future. Yeah. And that's been the evolution of our recent history of workers because you know a thousand years ago work was very different than today and it's gonna be very different tomorrow it does seem that way and oyster looks like it's gonna be at the center of it tony thank you for your time it's tremendously interesting i think both the offering for your clients is in itself interesting and and, and was timely i love this um, north south global north global south connection starting point that you had even before distributed work became a thing because of covid but also the way the company your own company is building and, and the words you you give us about how you'd like that to be going forward. I think people can see and people should interpret by looking at what you do on your website that a lot of people talk about how to manage people these days. A lot of people talk about a focus on employee satisfaction and well-being, but you've actually put into place processes that support it. You've been able to describe processes that very clearly state how and why people should be comfortable in the way they relate to the company through the, through the system. And as I said, I think you need to write a book. Thank you for being with us. If people are interested in speaking more with you or getting in contact with the company, where should they go? LinkedIn is the best place to find me. 
Uh, you can add me on LinkedIn or follow me on LinkedIn and my email, Tony at OysterHR.com. Thank you for having me. Nice and simple. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for joining us. And I look forward to seeing how Oyster develops.